Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers in the House advance a resolution that could restore the ballot initiative, but it could come with a number of changes and new restrictions. Then, a look at a better bus history in New Orleans and Birmingham's attempts to drive its public transit into the future. Plus, there's hesitation regarding the Senate's plan to fully fund the MAEP. We talked to a senator who served when the original formula was created. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's been nearly two years since the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled the state's ballot initiative process unconstitutional. But a new revised referendum process is making its way through the legislature. Yesterday, the House took up a Senate resolution that would restore the ballot initiative process. Republican Nick Bain of Corinth explained what major modifications would come if the resolution is passed. It is not constitutional. It is a statutory initiative. It allows them to make amendments to the statute. Uh, to a statute. It, for the initiative process, you cannot propose any new amendments to the Constitution, cannot propose any new law or amend any existing law relating to Mississippi public employees' retirement system. So you cannot do anything that impacts PERS. Uh, you cannot propose any new local or special law, local or private law. Cannot propose any new law or amend or repeal anything that has to do uh, any existing law on any subject matter that any section of this Constitution prohibits the legislature from enacting. What that says is you can't do anything the legislature can't do. Um, you cannot appropriate money out of an initiative, and you cannot propose any new law, amend or repeal anything in any law that relates to abortion. The new process also includes a signature threshold. The initial Senate language required total signatures in each of the congressional districts equal at least 12 percent of the most recent presidential election or 240,000 people. The House amended that language to reflect the signature requirement equal to at least 12 percent of the most recent gubernatorial election, or 106,000, a change that would significantly reduce the signature threshold. 
but some of the most heavily debated elements of the resolution centered on the exceptions carved out in the new initiative process. Democrat Daryl Porter of Summit challenged Bain on the exclusion of the abortion issue. Well, Jim, and I'm sure you can agree with me that even as a body, we don't always get things right, do we? No, that's why we come back every year. And that's also why we have, why we would have a ballot initiative in place. In an instance that we don't get things right, then the people get to speak, correct? And they, and they have the ability to do that, except in a limited circumstances. So we're going to stifle the people's voices by telling them, you can have an initiative process, convoluted, but here are also, here are and, also some things and that if, you can't put on the ballot. And if the people choose and the people have elective representatives, again, they can bring this back back before us, they can change those provisions. It'd probably be smarter for people to unelect those who are trying to stifle their voices, correct? I don't know that anybody's trying to stifle their voices. Right now, we're trying to give people the voice that they don't have. Well, you just sat there and told me that there's they can't even put abortion on the uh, that's, that's on one, initiative. That's, one that's stifling, correct? That's, that's one issue. One issue. But there are several other things that they can't put a, have on a ballot initiative, too, correct? Well, one's constitution. Other stuff is local and private, which I don't think would be there. Others, uh, uh, stuff that the legislature can't do anyway. And the other one is, is appropriate funds, which is on, in our Constitution specifically limited to the legislature. So really the only issue is abortion uh, that is on there. And like I said, look at this body. Look at the body across the hall. Look at your state leaders. Everybody there has run on a pro-life uh, measure uh, agenda and platform. And I think... It's safe to say that the state of Mississippi is, is pro-life and would, would abide by that policy. But, gentlemen, again, you wouldn't know that because we won't allow the people to vote on it. They had, they, they'll go to the ballot box in November. As the debate on the bill closed, House Minority Leader Democrat Robert Johnson of Natchez pointed out other ways the new proposed initiative process differed from the one in place for roughly 30 years. It, it gives the legislature the power to amend and change anything that the people want to do. And I talked about that. And, and what's important about that is that I don't think the public, the public is used to being difficult to pass a, a referendum. But they, every referendum, the few that have passed, have been solidly uh, uh, affirmed. And we haven't touched them. We have done our job. They've done their job. And we've allowed that to happen. I, I, I just don't think anybody in here wants to have a process where uh, – some zealots here in the legislature comes back and forces people on, onto a vote to change something that the people, uh, uh, through direct democracy, decided that they want. And so I just want to make sure you, you're aware of that because some of it wasn't clear in the gentleman's explanation. And so uh, it also says that uh, under this current bill, he, he said it, but I don't think it's correct. But the way I read it, you can only have two to three. I think it's two things on the ballot. Under uh, uh, under the current law, you can have at least five. And so if people want to do the work, generate the funds, do whatever they have to do to make sure that their voices are heard, because sometimes we don't hear them, then we should not restrict that process. Uh, I, my, my point in being here is to make sure that you understand what you're voting for, that you're not voting for an initiative process that the public wants. You're voting for an initiative process that a handful of uh, House and Senate leaders want, and mostly Senate leaders. There was a comment made by a senator that says that he doesn't like the process, the man handling the bill, because he thinks it's dangerous. And I, my, my point is dangerous for who? If the public has the intelligence to vote for you, but if they want to make a different vote on their issues, 
then we should give them the freedom to do that. We shouldn't restrict that freedom. We should allow that to happen. The House voted 75 to 9 to adopt the initiative proposal. Negotiators from each chamber are likely to work on a final version later this month. Coming up, a look at a better bus history in New Orleans and Birmingham's attempt to drive its public transit into the future. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. New Orleans and the Gulf South are not known for their great public transit, but some New Orleans remember a time when the buses in the city were much faster and more reliable. For the Gulf States Newsroom, Stephen Basaha and Carly Berlin report on the region's hopes for a better bus future while it deals with today's transit problems. So, Carly, we're back from our New Orleans bus test run. Yeah, our very bumpy bus test run. <laughs> I can barely hear myself talking. What was that? I can barely hear myself talking with the rattling. <laughs> Much easier to hear you off the bus. Yeah, and to explain the point of our bus ride adventure, I first need to introduce Alex Wiggins. He just retired after leading the New Orleans Regional Transit Authority, but he told me about this sort of New Orleans transportation golden age back when he was growing up here in the 70s. So I don't even remember even having to rely on a schedule. I just remember walking out to a bus stop. So he told me this story about one route he'd take all the time. First, grabbing a bus down the street from his house in Algiers. And no matter what, within 10 to 15 minutes, something's coming. He'd then hop off that first bus onto the ferry over the Mississippi River. The ferry to Canal. and Then, out then he'd the get on another bus up to Pontchartrain Beach, the amusement park that used to be on the lake. I literally, as a kid, remember getting in trouble because we got home at like 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. But we all did it on public transit. So So he'd get across the river and across town in about an hour. So that's what we tried to recreate, that route from Algiers to the old amusement park while dealing with the 2023 bus reality. And one hour was the time to beat. This our bus? Yep. And that first bus ride, it went great. But then, shoot, okay. (laughs) Ferry's not running. So a shuttle took us across the river instead. Then we took a streetcar before a final bus ride, which didn't drop us off quite where we needed, so we walked the rest of the way. Well, no sidewalk. Now I guess we just walk on the grass. Just walk right up the hill. And when we finally got there... Final time is (laughs) one hour, 57 minutes, 15 seconds. We weren't even close. Yeah, even accounting for the ferry being down, it took us way longer than Wigan's old ride. And like a lot of problems here, this goes back to 2005, Hurricane Katrina. Before that, there were double as many routes and double the amount of buses. But the flood wiped out most of the RTA's fleet. Now, even though Wiggins is retired, the RTA's still trying to get back some of that old speed and reliability. And one of their ideas is this thing called bus rapid transit. What is BRT? 
It's a high-quality, bus-based travel option that combines the speed and efficiency of light rail with the flexibility of traditional bus service. That's from an Ohio transit agency, which is one of many giving bus rapid transit a try. Which, all things considered, are just fancier buses. Okay, now hold on. It's a bit more than that. The selling point of BRT is really getting something closer to the speed of a rail system without having to pay for a new rail system. Usually, that's through dedicated bus lanes, and sometimes the buses even get priority at traffic lights. About 70 agencies across the U.S. and Canada, they're all running these prioritized bus routes, with many of them expanding. And New Orleans is considering building a line between Algiers and New Orleans East through downtown. And Jackson, Mississippi, has also looked at BRT in recent years. And now Birmingham launched its own BRT back in September. Attention Birmingham Express riders. And I live in Birmingham, so I figured that was worth another bus ride challenge and took it to work with some mixed results. Oh no. In the afternoon, the bus ended up not showing up and left me stranded. So I had to phone a friend. Hello? Yeah, uh, the bus no-showed on me. I I do need someone to pick me up. Now, the county's transit agency has blamed a bus driver shortage for delayed rides, but I should say the morning trip, that went great. The bus picked me up right on time, got me to work quickly, and the other riders, they say they really love it for those same reasons. And that's what we heard from riders when we rode the bus in New Orleans, too. They want a faster, more reliable bus ride. In other words, a return to what New Orleans transit used to be. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Carly Berlin. And I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, there is hesitation regarding the Senate's plan to fully fund the MAEP. We talked to a senator who served when the original formula was created. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The governor is saying he's not sold on the new formula for the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. Tate Reeves took to Twitter earlier this week and advised lawmakers to be cautious of the changes made by the Senate. The MAEP is a calculation that informs how much the state should be spending on public education. It hasn't been fully funded in 15 years. Senator Chahab Bryan is a Democrat from Amory and the longest-serving member of the Mississippi legislature. He voted on the original MAEP, which was initially vetoed by then-Governor Kirk Fordyce. That veto was overridden by a two-thirds vote in each chamber. Brian reflects on the development of the MAEP with our own Michael Guidry and discusses the legislative challenges since its inception. School districts rely heavily on local ad valorem taxes for much of their funding. So if I'm a district where I levy a mill of tax and I get $10 per student 
and there's a identical school district next door that levies one bill of tax and gets $25 per student, um, I'm going to have a more difficult time than that other district. So there's a question of how do you deal with the imbalance as you go from district to district with property tax value per student while still allowing districts to do as much as they can to educate students if they desire to do that. The other concept was a, a concept of adequacy, which is that, that the state itself has an obligation to ensure that each school district has enough money to provide an adequate education for the children in its district. You argue the meaning and definition of adequacy. But the concept of equity and the concept of adequacy were sort of technical words of art, but that's where the name came from. The Adequate Education Program was an attempt to deal with both of those concepts. When we look at the factors that are that are calculated in this, um, how were those factors identified in uh, trying to achieve, I guess, those two ideals, uh, adequacy and equity? In its simplest form, what the formula does is to determine, first of all, how much money each district needs to run a school district that has enough money to uh, provide what's required for accreditation. That's not the highest standard, but that's the standard we, we adopted. And so you compute that amount and eventually break that down to a per student cost, and that's what the formula calls the uh, base student cost. Then you multiply that by the number of students in each district, and you come up with a dollar amount that each school district needs. Again, in general terms, each school district is required to levy 28 mils of tax for the formula, and then the state sends the district a check for the balance. So if we've got two identical districts, each of whom needs $10 million to operate, one district levies 28 mils and they collect a million dollars, the state sends them a $9 million check. The district next door is identical, except when they levy, eight, 20, levy 28 mils, they get $3 million. The state would send them a check for $7 million. And the concept was that we're going to require a 28 mil contribution from every district for the basic cost of this program. But if you wish to levy additional ad valorem tax, you can keep every penny of that for your district. If you have other sources of income, good for you. You get to keep that for your district, and this won't count against you, as it were, in any way. But we are going to have this basic funding formula, and effectively for the first 28 mils of tax, we're going to hold everybody statewide uh, uh, equal about that early amount of the levy. And if you can recall, um, what was the reception both um, in the Senate and in the State House when this came up for a vote? Well, when it was passed, Governor Fordyce vetoed it, and the veto was overridden uh, in both the Senate and both the House. So at that time, you had more than two-thirds of the Senate and more than two-thirds of the House not only voting for the legislation, but voting to override a veto. 
So it had broad-based support uh, across the political spectrum uh, in both houses and around the state. Since then, we've seen a reluctance from the state legislature to uh, fully, well, what we say, fully fund the MAEP. What has led to to this reluctance? You know, we, how, how did how did the the state legislature go from a two third majority in, in in each house in support of this to not obliging to what the the formula dictated? The formula was uh, phased in over a six year period. It was fully funded during that six year period. And ironically, when we got to full implementation of the formula. The state had enormous budget difficulties, and things were getting cut everywhere. Um, What's not understandable is in the various years as time went by when the state had additional revenue, the state did not fund it. That's that's different. And as you may know, the legislature uh, last year had a half-billion-dollar tax cut. And several years previous to that, we had another half-billion-dollar tax cut. And, you know, that each of those tax cuts was twice as much as what it would have taken to fund the formula. So clearly there is a change in the, the legislative priorities. And right now the priority in the legislature seems to be cutting taxes and reducing government is an end into itself. The effect of that means we have inadequate funding for schools, we have in, inadequate money to build and maintain roads, and we have needs around the state for water, sewer, basic infrastructure. We don't have the money that we need for those things because instead we've had tax cuts, many of which have the effect of taking money outside the economic system of the state and sending it to people like the Walton heirs in Arizona or wherever the Walton heirs are this year. And I, I just find that very draining and very disappointing, but that's where we are. Just on your personal perspective, where is this newfound interest in funding the MAEP coming from? Is this a product of an election year or as public education funding got to the point where it could just no longer go unaddressed. Senator DeBoer is chairman of education. Uh, Senator Hobson from Vicksburg is chairman of appropriations. They have both been interested in this for a long time. I know it's been an interest of the lieutenant governor, and obviously he appointed those two chairs. Mm -hmm. And we now have extra money We've sort of gotten through the crisis of the pandemic. We have a chance to catch our breath and look at something more long-term. And the the stars just align to do this at this time. But this has been something that I know the the two major players in the Senate, Senator Briggs and Senator DeBar, have been interested in. And it's something the lieutenant governor has been interested in. And based on the outcome in the chamber, it seems like there is – uh, a, a swelling of support. Um, are you hearing that from your colleagues on both sides of the aisle? Well, I, I observe that there are two chambers in this in this building, and I'm not sure there's the enthusiasm in the House for this that there is in the Senate, but I suppose we'll find out. It's It's obvious the governor does not share the enthusiasm for public education that other folks do. I mean, I've I 
I just have pretty strong policy differences with Governor Reeves about the importance of public education and the necessity of giving the districts at least enough money to not get too far behind the schools in Arkansas and Alabama. Um, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that the governor is not a more enthusiastic supporter of public education, but we are where we are. Ha, Brian, Senator from Amory. Uh, we appreciate your time and your perspective. Happy, happy to talk. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.